McCaves acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional custodians of our officers' land. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to their cultures and elders past and present. We stand in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their continuing struggles for justice. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's Trial by Podcast. This week we'll be discussing the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation trial. My name is Georgina and this is Ella, Caitlin, Maddie and Shay. We discuss domestic violence and sexual violence and abuse in this episode which can be distressing. If you need resources, assistance or support, please contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic Violence Counselling Service on 1800RESPECT or one 18- Double zero seven three seven seven three two or lifeline.org.au for 24-7 crisis support help. So, Caitlin, tell me a little bit about the background to this dispute. Yeah, so Amber Heard and Johnny Depp began dating in 2012. By 2014, they were engaged, and by 2015, they were married. However, in 2016, Heard filed for divorce, And four days later, she filed for a temporary restraining order on grounds of domestic violence. A Los Angeles judge actually granted the restraining order. And in Heard's court document, she stated that Depp violently attacked her in their apartment. Photographs submitted to the court showed Heard with a large bruise on her face, as well as broken bottles, picture frames and shattered glass on the floor. In addition, she alleged two other incidents of domestic violence by Depp in the past six months. And Heard said that during the entirety of their relationship, Johnny had been physically and verbally abusive to her. It's interesting, Caitlin, that Depp denied all of these allegations. At the time, he even claimed that Amber was attempting to secure a premature financial resolution by alleging abuse. Depp also claimed that he was unable to attend the hearing on this matter and had not actually heard Amber's specific allegations against him, which I find really interesting. Yeah, I agree. And also, further to that, they reached an out-of-court divorce settlement on August 2016 and Heard withdrew her request for a permanent restraining order. They also issued a joint statement that neither of their contradictory statements about each other were true. This included that there was never an intent of physical or emotional harm and that was in terms of what debt had done, and that neither party had made false accusations for financial gains. So Heard wasn't lying for a better financial settlement. Heard, who got $7 million in settlement, also announced a plan to donate it to charity. Following this, Heard says that she was dropped from a movie and a fashion ad campaign after making her accusations in relation to the restraining order, Meanwhile, Johnny Depp was announced for a key role in Fantastic Beasts. By 2018, Heard had been named ambassador on women's rights for ACLU and she wrote an op-ed with them. In March 2019, Depp filed a defamation lawsuit against her seeking $50 million. And by January 2021, Heard had countersued Depp for $100 million. And, of course, there was the UK case that everyone is familiar with in which Depp sued the son for libel which re- because the son had referred to him as a wife beater in its article. In this case, the burden was on the son to show its statement was true, was substantially true, in fact. 
In that case, the judge found 12 out of 14 incidents of domestic violence alleged by Heard had occurred. Subsequent to this case, Depp was asked to resign from Fantastic Beasts. So, Caitlin, why do you think that Mr Depp chose to bring his defamation claim in the state of Virginia? Well, it's interesting. It's likely due to the fact that that is where the Washington Post itself was printed, although I would just note that the Washington Post itself wasn't a defendant in the suit. However, it also may have been due to Virginia's weak anti-strategic lawsuits against public participation or their anti-slap laws. Now, these anti-slap laws generally stop rich and powerful people like Johnny Depp from burdening courts and defendants with meritless lawsuits. Anti-slap laws let a defendant file a motion to strike and or dismiss a case on the grounds that the case involves protected speech on a matter of public concern. So can you tell us a bit more about the origins of a defamation law in Virginia? Definitely. So in the US as a whole, the First Amendment to the US Constitution protects the freedom of speech and freedom of the press. This stops US Congress making any laws prohibiting the exercise of free speech, and so court cases are recorded and broadcast. In Virginia in particular, the elements of a defamation case are publication of an actionable statement of or concerning the plaintiff with the requisite intent. Now, publication in this regard means that the statement was viewed or heard by a person aside from either the plaintiff or the defendant. Now, there is no requirement for it to be published in the formal sense, like through a newspaper article or an op-ed. So long as some other person, aside from the subject of the statement, receives it, publication is deemed to have occurred. It should also be noted that in many jurisdictions, defamation actions are known as libel if the statement is written and slander if the statement is oral. However, in Virginia, there is no distinction between actions for libel and those for slander. Whether it's written or oral, the claim is one for defamation. Now, to be actionable, the statement must be a false statement that harms the plaintiff's reputation in the community or deters other persons from associating with him or her. In Virginia, the law recognises that certain statements constitute defamation per se. These statements are so egregious that they will always be considered defamatory and are assumed to harm the plaintiff's reputation without further needing to prove that harm. The statement must also be substantially true, not necessarily entirely true. A statement is not actionable just because it is false. It must also be defamatory, meaning that it harms the plaintiff or the plaintiff's reputation. In Virginia, a statement that hurts the plaintiff in his or her profession or trade amounts to defamation per se. Now, for many years, defendants could be held liable for defamation, even if they honestly believe that the statement they published was true, so long as they were negligent. In other words, failed to act as a reasonable person would in forming that belief. However, in the landmark 1964 decision of New York Times Co. and Sullivan, the U.S. Supreme Court held that freedom of speech protections in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution require a stricter standard with respect to statements about public officials. It is noted that the doctrine of the Sullivan case, which dealt with public officials, was expanded over the years to include all public figures. That's right, Ella. 
And it's interesting because post-Sullivan, such defamation cases can now only succeed if the defendant published in the statement with actual malice, which means that the defendant either knew that the statement was false or acted with reckless disregard as to whether or not it was true. This is typically a difficult standard to meet and, practically speaking, often prevents public figures from pursuing defamation claims. This is where Virginia's soft anti-slap laws would have benefited Johnny Depp, as mentioned by Caitlin. Well, that's right. Maddie, thank you very much for that. And speaking of the matter of um, Heard and Depp, Mr Depp argued that this piece that was published was um, made and contained false implications that um, he was the abuser of Heard and that caused damage to his reputation and career. It is important to note that four days after the op-ed ran, Depp said that Disney had dropped him from his very famous role as Captain Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and he was also dropped from his Fantastic Beast franchise following the statements. Now, Mr. Depp had sued um, Mr. Heard in 2019, alleging three counts of defamation as follows. The first one was whether Mr. Depp was defamed by the online headline of the op-ed in the Washington Post saying, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. The second statement was at the third paragraph of the published op-ed and read that, when two years ago I became a public figure representing domestic abuse and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. In the second passage, Ms. Heard had wrote that I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. So after receiving the suit from Mr. Depp, Ms. Heard lodged a countersuit for $100 million in damages, alleging that she was equally as defamed by Mr. Depp or his attorney at the time, Mr. Wardman. And so from there, the parties proceeded to a hearing and the trial went on for six long weeks, which included witness testimony. Now, following the six weeks of trial, on the 1st June 2022, Judge Penny Ascarati instructed the jury that they must have found the following to hold Heard liable for defaming Mr. Depp. And the jury had to establish that Ms. Heard made or published a statement, that the statement was about Mr. Depp, that the statement was false, that the statement had a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp, that the defamatory implication was designed and intended by Ms. Heard and that it conveyed a defamatory implication to someone who saw or read it other than Mr. Depp. And lastly, it had to be proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Heard made the statements with actual malice, meaning that she had knowledge that her allegations were false or so recklessly amounted to a willful disregard to the actual truth. And as we all know by now, on the 1st of June 2022, the jury found that Mr. Depp had been indeed defamed by Amber Heard. 
Now, regarding damages, seven jurors rejected Heard's counterclaim, awarding her $2 million in damages for a single count of her suit, after finding that Depp's former attorney, Adam Waldman, had defamed her on one of three counts in her countersuit. Debt was awarded US $10 million, which is approximately $14.4 million AUD in compensatory damages and US $5 million in punitive damages. But it should be noted that the state law caps punitive damages at US 350000 so therefore Depp received US $10.35 million. So, Caitlin, could you please tell us a bit more about the public aspect that this particular case has had on the public in general and social media? Yeah, sure, Shay. So, in the UK, trials are never broadcast or streamed in their entirety. However, as we know, you can actually, any member of the public can walk in and view a court case unless it's closed off to the public for some particular reason. Now, the Depp v. Heard case reached an international audience with the Law and Crime Network having 9 million viewers per day and only 35% were in the United States. Now, in terms of the benefits of a live-streamed trial, there is one in particular, which is that it can maintain and restore public trust in the system through the public being able to actually view all the testimony and view the evidence and have some faith that the jury is coming to a reasoned decision. And also on this point, all trials are public in the US due to the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. Thanks, Ella. Now, just touching on the point that you've just mentioned and how this particular trial was televised when it was occurring in Virginia. Well, John Jr., could you please uh, bring our attention to the difference really as to the trial that occurred in the UK in around uh, a couple of years ago now compared to the one that just occurred in Virginia. So what's really interesting about the US case compared to the UK case was that in the US case, that was awarded more than $10 in damages after convincing the jury that Heard was a malicious liar. This is despite the fact that the UK judge determined in 2020 that this was substantially true that Deb had assaulted her during their relationship. The High Court handed down its judgment in the high-profile defamation case brought by Deb over a newspaper article that labelled him a wife-beater. Justice Nicol dismissed Deb's claim, holding in essence that the words used in the Sun's report were substantially true. Importantly, neither Depp nor Heard was on trial, and it was not a criminal trial either. There were two central issues, the meaning of the article complained of and whether the imputation conveyed by them that the Hollywood actor engaged in unprovoked attacks and violent conduct against his ex-wife was true in substance and fact. The judge also expressly acknowledged that Depp proved the necessary elements of his cause of action, that his reputation had been damaged. But under UK defamation law, if a defendant proves that the published words are substantially true, they have a complete defence. They cannot be successfully sued regardless of the gravity of the allegations. In this case, the judge found that the great majority of alleged incidents of violence physical assault against his ex-wife were proved to be substantially true and dismissed Depp's claim. Additionally, Depp had the difficult evidentiary burden. 
The conduct alleged was essentially criminal and highly defamatory, especially in the post-Me Too landscape. The judge's ruling suggests that the actor correctly assessed the potential reputational damage that the words wife-beater would cause to his future. So how was the outcome different in the US, Caitlin? Could you shed some light on that? Yes, sure. So just touching on the um, principles that were raised earlier by Maddie, I'm going to go more into the application of that law in the US. So essentially the burden of proof was on Johnny Depp to prove that elements of defamation had been met and also that there was actual malice by clear and convincing evidence. Um, and the malice comes in due to the celebrity status of um, Depp and Heard. So in addition, Depp had to prove that the statements were false and defamatory and, as I mentioned before, that they were said with malicious intent. And another difference, I suppose, between the, U- the US and the UK case was that in the UK, the statements were um, it essentially involved the Sun republishing statements and evidence from Heard, whereas... In the um, US, they were looking at statements that had actually been made or published by Heard in the 2018 op-ed published in the Washington Post. And um, Georgina, do you think you could go in um, a little bit more into the application or the difference, I suppose, in the UK case? What's really interesting is that in the UK case, Justice Nicol found against Depp in defamation case against news group newspapers and Dan Wharton, the owners of the Sun newspaper and the author of an article published in the Sun, which contained imputations regarding physical abuse, referring Depp as a wife beater. Nichols found on the balance of probabilities that the great majority of alleged assaults have been proved to the civil standard. NGN relied on the truth defence, burden on NGN to prove on the balance of probabilities that the statement was substantially true, that it was more likely than not that the article in the Sun was substantially true. NGN called her as a witness, but she was not a party to the proceedings. The defendant had to prove statements were not defamatory, relying on defence of truth. So, Ella, now that this trial has been done and dusted, we would hope. Would you mind just exploring with us, is there any chance of appeal for Miss Heard in this case? Yeah, so Heard's lawyers have said that she will appeal the decision, which is a process that will likely take years. Legal experts in America have agreed that appellant courts tend to be reluctant to reassess credibility judgments made by juries, as was done in this case. So Heard's legal team will try to argue that some legal error was made during the trial and will try potentially to overturn the verdict on the basis that the jury was influenced by the things they saw and heard in the media and outside of the courtroom. The appeal is likely to be based on the evidence admitted into the trial as well, and the basis of the appeal could be that the evidence went too far from the real issues of the case. However, As was mentioned before, evidentiary rulings are rarely the basis used to overturn a jury verdict. They may also challenge the judge's decision to allow the trial to be live streamed, as well as the judge's decision not to sequester the jury. 
as they were exposed to things that were not admissible in the trial. However, this was would likely not work as the idea of sequestering juries has fallen out of favour in modern courtrooms. However, they could interview the jurors and ask how they came to the conclusion that they did. Additionally, an appeal may also be based on the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. However, a statement covered by the First Amendment are only those that do not negatively impact others, which is not the case here. Heard may also appeal as to the amount of damages that was handed down only, and this would be from a cost perspective, as Heard is unable to pay the judgment. So now that we've explored a little bit about um, the prospects of appeal, I think it's also interesting to have a look at um, what the parties have been doing post-verdict. And one of the things that came to the media attention after the verdict was that the defendant herself, Ms Heard, and her legal representative, they both had engaged in post-judgment um, interviews and have gone forward and spoken to the press about their uh, experience throughout the case, their opinion, uh, what they thought of the judgment. And it was really interesting to note that um, Heard and her lawyer herself, they, they hinted that this matter had already been decided in the court of public opinion. And they went on to discussing that there was a lot of turbulence on the social media platforms and that obviously was very prevalent and there were a lot of negative comments about um, Ms. Heard. But Ella, going back to your point that this might be a, a good ground of appeal, I think it's important to note that th this is made on a basically speculative ground and that there's currently no evidence to to ascertain that this trial was swayed just by the media itself. Yeah, so you're totally right, Shay. I mean, when you're looking at the trending Twitter searches with hashtags, uh, there were over 1 billion views just on the hashtag justice for Johnny Depp hashtag alone. Whilst there is yet to be any evidence of this, and like you said, bearing in mind that Heard was well aware of the social media rampage over this issue, no evidence to that effect or evidence that there has been a social media smear campaign as alleged in Heard's counterclaim. And given that the jury made no findings as to the count of defamation as alleged by Heard and that she was provided with the opportunity to adduce evidence in the proceedings, it definitely appears that it's unlikely that this would constitute a solid ground of appeal if she so chose to go down that road. Yes, and going back to another point that Ella has mentioned earlier is that the sequestration of the jury, um, that particular order had not been part of the orders made by the judge in this case. And that would be also quite unusual for a civil case in Virginia to require sequestration of jurors. It is important to note that the jurors were only ordered not to use social media or the likes um, at the time that the trial was going on. And there is just no evidence to that effect as of today and I guess this point will be left for contention until this matter progresses to an appeal. And another point that is very interesting is that whilst it is perfectly legal for someone to just reflect and criticise the judgment that they received, 
the message that had been conveyed by Ms. Hurd and her lawyer was that there was some kind of breach of ethical obligations on part of the jurors. And this just brings the whole court system into disrepute and would be a dangerous strategy to forward her appeal. Could you please just bring us to what would that mean if this case were to occur in Australia? Definitely. So to prove defamation in both Australia and the US, the courts must decide whether statements made by person A to person B about person C would lower person C's reputation in the eyes of person B. In the US, there is no ceiling on reputational or economic loss and the sky's the limit on what the court deems fair for the applicant to receive as a payout. On the contrary, in Australia, in 2020, the Council of Attorneys General, which was one Attorney General from each state and each territory, approved amendments to their respective defamation acts to put a cap on non-economic loss reputational damages, which is now... 421,000 Australian dollars. New South Wales has already passed this into law and other states and territories are poised to follow suit. I agree and I think it is also important to note that in 2020 the state of New South Wales has introduced a serious harm threshold which means that the applicant must prove that the defamation caused or would likely cause serious harm to their reputation. This is in place to avoid wasting the court's time with frivolous or meritless claims. And prior to those amendments, Australian actor Jeffrey Rush received a $2.9 million payout in 2018 in his case against the Daily Telegraph. And this case entailed that a newspaper published stories accusing him of behaving inappropriately towards former co-star Aaron Jean Norville. The court maintained that a reasonable reader would consider Rush a pervert after reading comments made in the story. That's so true, Shane. And did you know that a year earlier in 2017, Hollywood megastar Rebel Wilson was awarded damages in the amount of $600,000, which was actually down from her original claim of $4.7 million. The Court of Appeal held that there was no basis to award damages for economic loss with no evidence that she would miss out on future contracts due to the eight articles that were published by Bauer Media, which Rebel Wilson said painted her as a serial liar. A key difference between the Depp Heard case and any case, defamation or not, that is heard in Australia, is that the case will not be broadcast here. The argument is that if a court proceeding was to be televised, this may influence how a jurist would make the decision. Members of the public would know the case details and might try and influence the jurors. Court cases are not televised in Australia, even when there is no jury, for reasons of privacy, and so defendants are not further subjected to stress and humiliation, nor further trial by media, as you have mentioned already, Shay. So... It's really clear that there have been a multitude of varying perspectives of the Depp Heard case. Some have stated that Depp's life and career have been ruined by false allegations of violence and that he is the real victim. Others have expressed how disturbing the public treatment of Heard has been throughout the trial, particularly as it relates to claims that she is a liar, psychopath and a monster. However, this case is anything but black and white or straightforward. Well, thank you for listening to this week's Trial by Podcast. 
If anyone is feeling distressed or overwhelmed by this week's podcast, please contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service on 1800RESPECT or 1800-737-732 or lifeline.org.au.